like to begin by saying how thankful we are to be able to be here as a family, to be at the congregation here. It's been some time since we've been here and we're thankful for the opportunity and looking forward to the uh, privilege of being a part, let me get my, there we go, being a part of this work this month as we study concerning the security of the believer. And I hope that you will give yourself to thought and meditation concerning this subject and hope that the the subject as we study it throughout the month will, will meet a need, meet a spiritual need in your life. If you're here today and and you're struggling with your relationship with God, you don't know exactly where you stand with God, that by studying the truth, not to give you a false hope or give you a false security, but to teach from the Scriptures the hope that is revealed. And I hope that we can teach it in such a way that we'll be able to grasp this, that we'll be able to take it to heart, that it can draw us closer to God and strengthen our relationship with God. I was in, um, I think it was in Houston this summer, and a lady came up to me after Mike and I had given this lesson at Penn South. And she came up to me and she said, I just want you to know that uh, some sister from up at Penn South gave me the CDs to y'all's lessons. And whenever I was listening to them, I just broke down crying. Because this was a lady that was struggling. Am I saved? Do I have any security? And and the words that the Scripture spoke to her just caused her to, to become contrite in her heart and to realize anew the security and the encouragement and the refreshment that come from knowing that she was secure with the Lord through her Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and so we hope that that's the same effect that it has on all of us. And I get renewed in my faith and in my zeal as I study this again in, in preparing to present it to you. And I hope that uh, it will pique your interest. And I also want to say right here at the beginning, when we get through today, you're going to walk out of here with a lot of questions. <laughs> because what we might say may not fit within conventional or traditional wisdom and understanding. You know, it's been my experience as a teacher and my experience as a listener that any time that we teach about God's grace and and security and the role of works, we find ourselves chasing after different uh, ideas just so that we want to make sure that people don't misunderstand something. But uh, whenever we read through the book of Romans, there were people that misunderstood Paul. And there's going to be maybe some misunderstandings or some questions that you might have after the presentation today and other presentations that are given. Be patient. Be patient. Because what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he's taking us from being sinners all the way to our glory with Jesus Christ. And he lays it out from the very beginning to the very end. And he, and he sums up this, 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 this portrayal of the salvation of God at the end of Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Love of God in Christ Jesus. And so if you have questions, we're going to answer those questions, but we want to answer those questions in the context of the book of Romans. We want to answer them when Paul answers them. And so again, as we talk today and you walk out of here, you may have some questions like, well, does that mean this or does that mean that? Understand that the people that Paul wrote to, they had the same questions. Well, does that mean this or does that mean that? And Paul answers those. But today we want to to spend our time trying to grasp the fundamentals of our security in Christ so that we don't misunderstand or have our thinking diluted to the point to where whenever we talk about security, we in essence produce insecurity in believers. 
I want to begin with my airplane example. I, I listened to Mike's lesson and he began his lesson with an airplane example and a parachute. So I want to begin mine with an airplane example and parachute. So let's say that you're on the same airplane and you're flying and the, and the, the flight attendant walks out of the cabin and comes down the cabin and says, I hope you have enjoyed your flight with us today, but I've got some bad news. Our flight's going to be a little shorter than we originally planned because we're about to crash. And um, when we crash, this plane's going to burn. And if you're on this plane, you're going to burn with it. So you're going to have to get off this plane. And so I'm going to give you two options to get off the plane. You can take this parachute and you can strap this parachute on and you can jump out of the plane and you can pull that cord and you can allow the parachute, you can trust in the parachute to cause you to safely land on earth and be spared the destruction of this fire or you can jump out the side door and you can start flapping your arms. And you can flap and you can flap as hard as you want to. So those are your two options. Now some of you are looking around at each other. You're thinking, well really that's not an option. And that's exactly right. That's not an option. That's not an option. So she's offering you something that you know will work because it's been proven to work. You've seen people jump with parachutes before and those parachutes delivered them safe to ground. And you know one, just by reason, you know, by a little bit of common sense, that ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. Well, whenever it comes to our salvation, the Bible presents to us two means of justification. Two means of being right with God. And the Bible tells us explicitly, one of those ways works. And then the Bible also tells us the other way doesn't work. And as clear as the choice is between the parachute and flapping your arms is the choice between those two means of justification. Yet for some reason, we choose to put our faith and to put our hope in that which we know doesn't work to the exclusion of that which the Bible tells us will work. That's why we've entitled our lesson this morning, What Works and What Won't. As Michael laid out in the first few chapters of Romans, the sin problem that mankind is faced with. Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles... And the Jews, as they're listening to Paul teach, or as he's writing that, they're standing over there on the side. That's it, brother. Preach on. Those Gentiles are sinners. And then he gets to chapter 2, but says, Ah, Jews, understand, you're sinners also. And so he's concluded, everyone under sin, that all the world is guilty before God. Well, what do we do about that? How does God approach this, and how should we approach it? Well, the Bible lays out for us two means of justification. And what we want to do this morning is draw a clear distinction between those two means of justification so that we can understand where we need to put our hope, where we need to put our faith, and where we need to put our confidence. Let's define some terms before we begin. Justification. And I I know that's back there, but I'm so used to turning around like this. That'll probably be what I do a lot. To be justified means to be set forth as righteous, to justify by a judicial act by a judicial decision to free a man from guilt and to represent him as righteous. So we're all guilty before God. All the world is guilty before God. God is perfect and we're not perfect. So in order for us to have a relationship, imperfect people with a perfect God, we need a process by which we can go from being estranged with God and an enemy with God to being right with God. 
Now understand that if we're imperfect people, we can't fix ourselves to have a relationship with a perfect God. Because imperfection can't make itself perfect, can it? I could resign this day never to sin again. And I could live the rest of my life and not sin again. But what about all of those times that I have sinned? I'm still not perfect. And so because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect and all the world is not perfect and God is perfect, then we need a process by which we can be saved and that process is called justification. Where we are made right with God. We go, as Paul said, from being dead in trespasses and sins and we are made alive together with Christ Jesus. That process from going dead, from being dead in sin to being made alive in Christ, that is our justification. The Apostle Paul, when Whenever he speaks about justification, speaks of it in this term, being dead. How much hope does a dead man have? Not any, does he? A dead man has no hope. And whenever we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we have no hope. And therefore, in order for us to be right with God, in order for us to be made alive, it's going to take an act of God upon us in order to bring us and put us where we need to be so that we can have a relationship with Him. And we're made alive together with Christ. The righteousness of God. We read in Romans 1, verse number 16, "...for the not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." The righteousness of God, in my understanding from Romans, is that it is God's plan and provision for man to be made righteous. So if I want to know God's plan and God's provision for me to be made righteous, where do I look? I look at the Gospel. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. I look to the story of Jesus. I look at the work of Jesus upon the cross. And if I want to know about being right with God, that's where I look. The Gospel. I don't look at myself. I don't look at what kind of week I've had. I don't look at what kind of day I've had. I don't look at what measure of knowledge and the number of verses that I can quote. I don't look at how many elderly people that I've taken lunches to and all of those things. They're good things. But when it comes to me being right with God, I have to look at the Gospel. Now the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he taught to them the Gospel. He said, wherein ye stand, ye stand in the gospel. In other words, my stance, my foundation, my confidence, my security is in the gospel. No other place. Because if I look any other place, it's going to produce insecurity. And that's why many Christians struggle with insecurity whenever it comes to their relationship with God because we look everywhere else other than the cross of Jesus Christ. We look at the congregation that we attend. And again, we look at all of the things that we've done or all of the things that we haven't done. And our life is full of inconsistency and you can't have security out of inconsistency. You can only have security out of that which is consistent. And there's only one thing consistent in this life and that's the love of God through Jesus Christ. So whatever you look to or whatever I look to as a, something to gauge my relationship by with God, if I look at anything other than the gospel... It's going to produce insecurity. And I'm going to wonder, am I right with God? Am I saved? 
The apostle in Romans chapter 10 speaks of the two methods of righteousness. He said, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. And then in verse 6 he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Those are the two means of righteousness. Those are the two ways that we can be right with God. A righteousness that comes by law or righteousness that comes by faith. And those are exclusive to each other. You can't marry the two together. They're exclusive. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's going to delineate and draw a clear distinction between those two. The word of that's used there is a very significant word. It means denoting the origin or the point from which something proceeds. So here is the point right here. This is where my righteousness is going to proceed from. Is my righteousness going to proceed from law and my ability to keep law? Or is my righteousness going to proceed from my faith in Jesus Christ? So what we're talking about is this foundational point of whenever I think of security, when I think of my relationship with God, what's the very first thing that I think about? What's the very first thing you think about when you think about your relationship with God? Where does your mind go? Where does your mind go? Does your mind go to a law, a set of rules, a set of expectations that you perceive to be the source of righteousness? Or does my mind go to the cross? Whereas we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So it's either law or faith. Those are the two things that we can put our trust in that's going to determine the extent of our security in our relationship with the Lord. And Paul tells us specifically, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. That's like jumping out of an airplane and flapping your arms. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. Well, if it doesn't work, why do so many of us try it? If it doesn't work, why do so many of us experience the insecurity of trying to make it work through the deceitfulness of sin? Through the deceitfulness of sin and the human pride that we want to have some say-so, some determination... When in fact the Bible tells us that no flesh is justified in his sight. Paul in Galatians 2.16, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Very clear in this. Now whenever we read this, we're looking at this and we're stepping back and we're thinking, well, I agree with that. We're not justified by the deeds of the old law. But what we need to understand is that whenever Paul is talking about this, Paul is not talking specifically about the old law. See, we have the idea, well, we're under a new law today. But is that true? Is that what Paul meant? Now again, I always start this with a disclaimer. I'm not a, 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 I'm not a Greek scholar or anything like that. But, but I can read a lexicon, and you can read a lexicon too. And whenever you look at the uh, Greek construction of these statements, there's something that I want to point out. If you'll notice, what we've excluded from these verses is the word the. 
Because in the Greek, there is no article in front of the word law. That that article that was put there by the translators was put there at their own discretion and at their own judgment. But whenever the Apostle Paul was talking, Paul was not talking about the old law specifically. But Paul was speaking in general terms of any system of law. Read it again. Therefore by the deeds of law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, by the works of law shall no flesh be justified. That whenever the Apostle Paul was pinning these verses and making these statements about works and law, he wasn't talking about works that were specific to the old Mosaical law. He was talking about works that were specific that were to any type of law. A law-keeping system, a law principle for the basis of justification. The absence of the Greek article refers to law in general and not to a specific law. You see, a law is a set of conduct or a law is a set of expectations. And if we make our ability to measure up to those expectations as the source of our confidence in our relationship with God, we're going to fail because Paul says it don't work that way. See, the idea of old law versus new law, that is an unbiblical concept. It's old covenant versus new covenant. It's a completely different arrangement not just a new law. In fact, go home, get your Bible program, type in search, new law, the phrase new law, hit enter, and it's not going to show up anywhere. It's not going to show up anywhere. You see, our idea is, well, we're not under the old law anymore, but we're under the new law. So we're still doing business the same way, it's just that now we've got a different law. That's not right. The Bible doesn't teach that. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. And again, the article is excluded there. And what Paul is saying is, if law righteousness would work, that's the way it would be done. If law righteousness would work, that's the way it would be done. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been given by law. In other words, that doesn't work. The old law and the Israelites proved to us that that wouldn't work. You see, what we learn from the old law in God's relationship with the children of Israel on the basis of the old law is not just that the old law won't work, but that any law method by which we base our relationship on with with God, it won't work either. You see, whenever we look at the Scriptures in Hebrews 7 and verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. But I want us to understand something. There was nothing wrong with the old law. When we get into Romans chapter 7, Paul says the law was just. It, It was good. What was the problem? The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with me, Paul says. And here in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19, Paul said, the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better law did. Is that what it says? The bringing in of a better law did? No. The bringing in of a better hope did. How much hope do you give yourself 
And do I give myself to have a secure relationship with God based on my personal goodness and meritorious works? Not a whole lot of hope in that because I know myself too well. And you know yourself too well, don't you? But a better hope. The hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that we have in knowing that Jesus paid it all. I can draw close to God on that. You can draw close to God on that. Because I know that when I'm drawing close to God, I'm drawing close to God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ with all of my sins covered by His blood. There's security in that. But if I seek to draw close to God and I understand God's perfection and I understand my perfection, you know, what was man's first response to God when they sinned? Was it to draw close to God? No. It was to run and hide from God. And they were in the bushes and they were insecure. And so it's important for us to understand and get the idea out of our mind that we're under a new law, same way of doing business, just a better law. That is not right. That is not right. That would be like saying, okay, I'm going to jump out of the airplane, but instead of flapping my arms, I know that won't work, what I'm going to do is kick my legs. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with flapping your arms. Just that whole principle of flapping something isn't going to work. We've got to put that away and totally reorient ourselves to that which will work. And so that's the same way with our righteousness. People who struggle with insecurity in their relationship with God do so because they put an emphasis on their relationship with God in that which the Bible says will not work. Personal right, personal goodness. You see, we're all under sin. There's no difference. As we studied in Romans 1, Romans 2, the Gentiles, which had no law, were sinners. The Jews, which had a law, were sinners. So what difference did the law make? All the law did was just point out what sin was. Therefore, law, any law, is not the answer to man's sin problem and separation from God. And see, that was the, the idea that the Jews had. Well, the Gentiles don't have the law, so sure, they're sinners, but we've got the law. We make our boast of the law. But Paul says, you're sinners too. You're sinners too. So when you make your boast of law and you put your emphasis on law, on the principle of law for the basis of our justification, it's going to lead to misery and to insecurity. Paul says that we are, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we're justified freely by His grace. That is the beginning point of our righteousness with God. The word grace means a kind, affectionate, pleasing nature and an inclining disposition. An inclining towards courteous or gracious disposition, friendly willingness. You would never be saved. You would never be right with God. I would never be right with God were it not for God's willingness for, our, for us to be right with Him. It all starts with God. As we're going to study about this afternoon, when we were sinners, Christ still died for us. It wasn't based on any goodness that God saw in me. It wasn't based on any goodness that God saw in you. God didn't look at you and then He didn't look at me and He says, they're trying so hard so I'm going to give them a little grace to make up the difference. 
It's all because of God's willingness. If God was not willing to save us, we wouldn't be saved. And He was willing, separate and apart from our works and the life that we were living. That the person that was really trying God was willing for Him to be saved? And the person that was living on the streets with a bottle and a brown paper bag leaned up against the gutter somewhere, God was just as willing for that person to be saved also. It all starts with God's grace. And so whenever it comes to our security and understanding our relationship with God, instead of thinking about ourselves first, we need to think about where it all began. And it all begins with God's willingness Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. The word mercy here means a feeling of sympathy with misery. Active compassion, the desire of relieving the misery, the miserable. It all starts with God. God wants you to be saved. God wants me to be saved. Because even when we were in sin... Even whenever we gave no thought to God and we weren't seeking God, God wanted us to be saved then. You know, sometimes we have it in our mind that that, that God has just put us in a strait. And we quote the verse, If the righteous scarcely be saved, it's just so hard and difficult. It's almost as if God is unwilling. He's playing a cruel trick on us. That's not it. God wants us to be saved. And God wants us to know that He wants us to be saved. And God wants our security to begin with that belief that God wants us to be saved. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, the word redemption means receipt on a ransom. Deliverance from guilt and punishment of sin. The gift of salvation is free to us, but it's not free. It costs. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, we're not redeemed through the down payment of Jesus Christ. We're redeemed through the ransom. Jesus paid it all. The price for your sin and my sin has been sufficiently paid. What else could we ask for? What else could we do? And this redemption as in Christ, that's where it is. As Paul says in verse 25, that God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because of the forbearance of God had passed over sins that were previously committed. A propitiation means the place of conciliation or expiation. Those are two terms we don't use a whole lot. Conciliation just simply means to stop someone from being angry. You know, we studied in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Well, how do we stop that wrath? Well, we stop that wrath in Jesus Christ by being in Jesus. Expiation means atonement or to make amends. How can imperfect people make an amends to a perfect God? We can't. Because no matter what all good that we do, we're still going to be imperfect and He's going to be perfect. Therefore, because of the willingness of God, He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross that through the shedding of His blood, our sin debt has been paid, our ransom has been paid, and we're free from the bondage of sin in order to have a relationship with God. 
by His blood through faith. Again, when you think of your security and I think of my security, what's some of the first things you think about? Well, we need to think about grace. We need to think about the gospel. We need to think about the blood of Jesus. And I would dare say that if we're suffering from insecurity, those three things are kind of down on our list. We think about all the things that we could have done that we didn't. Or we think of all of the things that we shouldn't have done but we did. And we think in terms of our behavior and we think in terms of our actions and we think in terms of some understanding about what a new law says that we ought to do in order to be right. This is what we need to be thinking about. Because at the onset of understanding and explaining the process by which God saves man, Paul is placing great emphasis here on everything that God has done through Christ Jesus. Because that's where it all begins and that's where your security and my security is. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. The blood, the blood, the blood. As Paul said, through faith in His blood. Where's your faith for your relationship with God today? Where's my faith in my relationship with God today? Is my faith in the fact that it's Sunday and I'm at church? I've got a good relationship with God. Or is it in the fact that Jesus shed His blood on the cross? Paul says that this demonstrates at the present time His righteousness. The word demonstrate means to point out as with the finger. In other words, if you were to ask God, God, what is your righteousness? What would God point to? He wouldn't point to you. And He wouldn't point to me. And He wouldn't point to the good things that you've done and He wouldn't point to the good things that I've done. So as we cry out from the night and we cry out to God and we are vexed with our insecurities and our lack of confidence in whether we are right with God or not, God, give me an answer. Well, there's only two answers. Christ or the law. And reaching through the darkness will be the hand of God. And what do you think He's going to point to? He's going to point to that that works. He's going to point to Jesus Christ. He's going to point to that. That's our confidence. That's what God's pointing to. When you think about righteousness with me, this is what you need to look at. Because that's what God is pointing His finger to. That's what demonstrates the righteousness of God. Every Lord's Day when we come together and we do this right here, it should bring a security to our heart and gladness to our soul to know that I'm right with God. That I'm right with God. Where is Paul putting our focus more importantly, where is God putting our focus? When he, we think about God's righteousness, when we think about our rightness with God, this is our security right here. This is it. Yeah, well, but what about... No, 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 well, now what, what about all... This is it. This is it. Is it that simple? Absolutely. It is that simple. Oh, there's got to be more to it. It's that simple. Think about Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I do this and I... 
you know what? The people that the Apostle Paul was writing to, they did those same things. They did those same things. And Paul didn't write a letter to them any different than he would write a letter to you and to me. That our righteousness of God depends upon the cross of Jesus Christ and that's the source of our confidence and the source of our security. That He might be just and the justifier. God has to be just. God can't take away sin with a wink and a nod. Uh, It's okay. We'll let that slide. He can't do that. He has to answer sin. He has to account for sin. Sin has to be held accountable. How is sin held accountable? By placing it on the shoulders of this man right here. That's the cost of your sin. That's the cost of my sin right there. And that verifies the justice of God. God doesn't look at our sin with a wink and a nod. But rather, He places that sin right there. And we can be secure in the belief that our sin is taken care of right here. That God is just, and you know what? I'm just too. And you're just too. That He might be the justifier. For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the great transaction. A perfect man dies as a sinner so that an imperfect man can live as righteous to God. Well, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You know, there's a great concern about law. Nearly every questioner, as Paul was explaining this, the Jews had all of these questions about, well, how does this relate to the law? What does this do to the law? You know, whenever Jesus first came, they were concerned that Jesus was going to destroy the law because the law was trusted in so much that everything, every question that came up, there was a great concern about the law. And you know, we have the same concerns today because as you're sitting there this morning and you're hearing this, you're probably thinking, well, what about this? Well, does that mean that we don't have to do this? Does that mean this? The word void means to render useless. And a lot of times when you preach the grace of God, it makes it sound like as if you're making law useless. And we're not making law useless. What we're doing is we're using law for the purpose that law was intended. We're establishing the law. We're using the law in a lawful way. Romans 3.20, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I would not have known sin except through the law. And whenever he's talking about the law there, he's not talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about law principle. The purpose of law is to convict you and to convict me of sin. And once it's done that, now we're ready for Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle said that the law was a tutor, as in the King James Version, a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. So here's Christ. Here's the law. The law convicted us that we're sinners. The law convinces us that we're not good people. The law convinces us that we're not right with God. And once we've been convinced and convicted of that, now we're ready for Christ. Now we're ready for the Christ. Law has served its purpose. And whenever you look at law and you feel bad about yourself, you're doing exactly what law intended for you to do. To feel bad about yourself. Because in feeling bad about ourselves, then our hearts become right in order to receive the righteousness that comes by this. This 
produces insecurity. And in that insecurity, we then come to that which gives us security. Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said, when he looked back at his own life and he looked back at his religious accomplishments, as he was writing in the book of Philippians and there were people that made a boast of themselves as they lived in the flesh, and Paul said, okay, if you want to make that boast, I can match you and do you one better. I was a Pharisee, I was of the strictest sect of the law, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. When it came to the law, I was blameless, I persecuted the church when I thought that the church was a threat to the law. So if you want something to boast about, I've got it. But then Paul came to the realization that all of that was, as he says in the King James, counted as dumb. And he says, now... I'm not looking at my religious accomplishments. Now, I'm not looking at my personal zeal. Now, I'm not looking at anything about me when it comes to my righteousness. I want to be found not having mine own righteousness, which is from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness it which is from where? From God by faith. That's where it is. So then he comes to Romans chapter 4. What did Abraham find? Now he wants to make, the, he's made the argument that we're not justified by law, we're justified by faith. And so now he's going to try to convince some Jews about this argument. And if you wanted to convince a Jew about anything, you'd use Abraham or you'd use David as an example. And so he begins by saying, or he begins by using Abraham as an archetype. An archetype is a pattern or a model of which all things of the same type are representations of copies. So Abraham had a relationship with God, and his relationship with God was a model relationship with God. In fact, those of us that are in Christ, we are of the seed of Abraham. We are to walk in the steps of that faith of our father of Abraham. And so we want to look at what Abraham found. So Abraham was held up as an archetype for righteousness with God. So what did Abraham find? What did the Scripture say about Abraham? And Abraham obeyed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And Abraham kept the law, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What did the law or what did the word say about Abraham? Abraham believed God. Believed God. The word believe means to trust, to have confidence, and to be fully persuaded. And God looked at that trust, that confidence, and that persuasion in Abraham and declared him righteous. Not on the basis of Abraham's perfection or keeping of law, but on the basis of his trust, his confidence, and his persuasion. That's where it all begins. And again, resist the urge to say, yeah, well, but when you believe, you got to do... Just focus for just a moment on the foundational aspects of belief. Trust, confidence, and persuasion. Stay with that. Because unless we can understand those concepts and incorporate those into our heart, we'll never have security. God called Abraham, get up, go into a country that I don't, even, that I don't show you. And Abraham got his family together. And Abraham, he got up. And, and Abraham took his family 
But the Bible doesn't extol his obedience, his keeping of law. He extols the belief. He believed God. And that's why he was counted right. Genesis 15, verse number 5. He believed in the Lord and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now David, what's David say about righteousness? That righteousness is not about keeping the law. That whenever David talked about righteousness, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The blessedness that comes from God's righteousness is the forgiveness that comes from the blood of Jesus. That's the source of our confidence. That's the source of our strength. Quoting here Psalm 32, verse number 1. Blessed is he who keeps the law perfectly? No. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sin is covered? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose heart there is no deceit. Where should our confidence be in our righteousness with God? It's in the fact that God forgives my sin and iniquity. That's the blessedness. That's the blessedness that David talked about. So now Paul brings up the idea of circumcision. Did this happen while Abraham was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Why does he bring this up? Because the Jews were making a law out of circumcision, saying that you couldn't be saved unless you were circumcised. And they were doing something that we have a propensity to do today. And that is to take a representation or a seal or a sign of righteousness and make it a requisite of righteousness. Taking an effect of righteousness and making it a requisite for righteousness. As if to say, it's the blood of Jesus and this. It's the blood of Jesus and this. It's just the blood of Jesus. And so whenever Paul talked about this, we look at the life, the timeline of Abraham's At 75 years old, he left Haran. At 86 years old, Ishmael was born. At 99 years old, he was circumcised. When was it said about Abraham that he believed God counted unto him as righteousness? All the way back here. So God said he was righteous right here long before this ever happened. And yet many of the Jews of Paul's day put their faith in this for their righteousness. And so Paul is trying to make the argument here that it's not this. That whenever we look at the righteousness of God, it was based upon Abraham's belief. And you know, we can look at a lot of things in our life that come after this. And put our faith and put our hope and put our trust in the things that are over here instead of going back to the very beginning. What made us right in the beginning? The same thing that made you righteous in the very beginning is the same thing that makes you righteous today. The blood of Jesus Christ. Whenever you were baptized and you came up out of the water and you walked out of the baptistry, what was your faith and your hope and your trust in? I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Well, why should that hope and faith and trust be any different today? 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Well, we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to mature. We're supposed to do this and we're supposed to do that. Exactly. But we're never supposed to give up our hope, faith, and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ to take away our sins. 
You see, circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of faith. These are the verses that we were looking at. Unless you were circumcised according to the law of Moses, in Galatians chapter 2, he says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. You become estranged from Christ when you begin to take your faith and your hope and your trust and you begin to put it into something else other than Jesus Christ. That's what the Galatians were doing. And when we move our faith, our hope and trust from something else other than Jesus Christ and we begin to not put our faith and trust in Him, the logical result is insecurity. It's insecurity. In Romans 14, 4, verse number 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You see, what was Abraham's faith in God based upon? It was based upon promise. Based upon promise. You know, you're going to notice today as we go through these chapters and study these verses, you're not going to see the word commandment anywhere. But you're going to see the word promise a lot. You're going to see the word promise a lot. And here Paul talks about the promise that if we're justified by law, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. What does he mean by the promise made of no effect? Let's say that Matt here comes up to me after church today and says, Jay, I tell you what, I promise you that I'm going to make your mortgage payment this month. I don't know. You know, I'll take him up on it. No. I'm going to look at him. I'm going to, you know, that's, that's really nice, Matt. But there's going to be two things that I'm going to say. Number one, you don't have to. Number two, I can do it. So immediately when he makes that promise, the first thing I'm going to focus on is me and my ability. You don't have to. I can do it. And he doesn't have to. I mean, we've got a budget. I've got money put back. I know that, I know that our mortgage is taken care of this month. But he gave me a promise. You know what? Whenever I go to bed at night, I'm going to lay there and I'm going to think about Matt's promise. You know, you know, that's really nice. I mean, you know, that's, he's a great guy and far be it from me to rob anyone from the blessing of giving. But, but you know, it's taken care of. So I'm not really going to get up. I'm not going to get worried about it. I'm not going to get worried about my mortgage being paid. Because I know that even though he promised me, if he doesn't fulfill his promise, I can still take care of myself. Okay, let's say that I'm out of work. And let's say that I haven't made mortgage payments for four or five months. And my next mortgage payment is coming due, and I don't have any way of making it. And I can't make that mortgage payment, and I know if I can't make that mortgage payment, the mortgage lenders are going to come and boot us out in the street, me and my kids, and we're not going to have any place to live. So when I go to bed at night, I'm laying there with my eyes wide open thinking, how am I going to pay? How am I going to pay? I can't, I can't let this happen. What am I going to do? And then he comes to me and says, Jay, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to pay your mortgage this month. Same exact promise, but the effect is a whole lot different, isn't it? The effect is a whole lot different. That first promise, my security was really in myself, in knowing, hey, I can do it if He doesn't come through. But now where's my security? My security is in His promise. 
that when I lay there at night and I start thinking about my inability to pay and it creates insecurity and anxiousness within me, then I begin to do what? I start thinking about His ability to pay. And it gives me security. The promise has effect. That's what Paul's saying here is. You know, if we can do it ourselves, we don't need a promise. But the fact that God promised, He wants us to put our faith in that promise so that that faith will have an effect in our life. You know, we just got through reading in Galatians, Christ has become of no effect. You see, whenever we look at ourselves and we trust in ourselves and we put confidence in ourselves, we take away from the effect of Christ and we take away from the effect of the promise in our life. But our security should not come from laying in bed thinking about how good we are and then whenever we're not as good as we think we should be, we begin to doubt and we begin to question and we have insecurity. Our security comes from laying in bed thinking about the promise of God that I'm made right through faith in the blood of Christ Jesus. Yeah, I had a bad day. I did some things I shouldn't have done. And I really want to do better. And I'm going to try to do better. And I'm going to make all these resolutions. But the bottom line is, confidence and security and peace of mind doesn't come from my promises to God. As the old song says, you know, drops of grief can ne'er repay. It's going to be just knowing that God has promised and God is faithful. So, when we seek to be justified by law, we're making the promise of God useless and of no effect. Abraham believed two things about God. That He gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Gives life to the dead. In the very beginning, what did we say the process of justification was like? Taking a dead man and making them alive. You know, Abraham looked at his body, he looked at the body of Sarah, and he saw deadness in them, but he had faith that God could give life. He looked at himself, he looked at Sarah, he saw no hope. As Paul said, who against hope believed in hope. And when we'll look at ourselves, and when we look at ourselves, yeah, against hope, we believe when we look at ourselves. That's why we have to believe that even when I look at myself, and I think that it's not possible, God gives life to the dead. And He calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Me righteous? I'm not righteous. But God calls me righteous because He makes me righteous in Christ Jesus. And so Abraham, he did not waver, but he was strengthened in faith. The word waver, notice the definition of the word waver here. To be in strife with oneself. To doubt, to hesitate. Isn't that what insecurity is? But Abraham didn't have doubt. He didn't have insecurity. Because what did he always go back to? He went back to the promise of God. And he was fully convinced. To be fully convinced or strengthened in faith, as he puts here, means to be fully assured. Isn't that what we're talking about in this series? Being convinced and being fully assured. What was it that made Abraham so convinced and so assured and so secure in God? His ability to keep law or his faith and trust in the promises of God. When Abraham was laying there in bed at night thinking about that promise and thinking about himself and thinking, how is this going to happen? You know, and he even had some questions. How is this going to happen? Here's Eleazar, you know, take him. Or, or he went and he had Ishmael with Hagar. 
You know, when we look at that, well, those were instances when Abraham doubted. No, Abraham didn't doubt that God was going to do what he promised. He had some questions about how it was going to happen, but he didn't doubt, I don't think. Don't mistake questions for how something is going to happen as doubt for the fact that it's going to happen. You know, and we may look at ourselves and we may think, well, how can God save me? How can God have a relationship with me? That's what Abraham. How can God get a baby from me? He had that question, but he had that security that God can do it. God can do it. And so that was written, not because we want to talk about and extol the virtues of Abraham, but it was written for our sake. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's where Paul points everybody whenever it comes to righteousness. Not to look to themselves, not to look at our inconsistent, up and down, vacillating lives, to have security when we have good days and have insecurity when we have bad days. He's saying, look to Jesus. Look to the blood of Jesus. Let that be your faith. Let that be your confidence. And even in moments when you're like Abraham and you can't figure out how God's going, how God can do it, just know that God does it. Just know that God does it. And again, as you're sitting there, you're thinking, well, does that mean this? Does that mean that? Don't worry with that right now. Don't worry with that. Just focus on what Paul wants us to focus on. And that is to focus on Jesus Christ, the Gospel. That's His righteousness as He points to it. And I'll leave you with this verse this morning. But now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better laws. When established upon better laws, established upon better promises. Let me ask you this. Can you quote a promise from God in the Bible? Can you quote a promise that God gives to you? Can I quote a promise that God gives to me? You know, I can quote, you know, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. I tell you, nay, that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Grace of God teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. You know, a lot of times we can remember those, and it's good. Again, it's good. But how many promises can you quote? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If God be for us, who can be against us? Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Promises to put our faith in, to give stillness to our soul and peace to our mind, to enjoy our relationship with God, and to be found walking in the steps of the faith of our Father Abraham. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we hope that what we've talked about will help you to understand what you need to do. You're not good enough. You can't be good enough. God's perfect and you're not perfect. You know, you look around this audience and you can may say, well, I'm just as good as that person, that person, that... Well, preacher, I'm just as good as you are. Good. <laughs> but you're not going to stand before me in judgment. You're not going to stand before anyone in this building in judgment. You're going to stand before God, the perfect righteous judge. And you're not as good as God, and you can't be as good as God. That's why God, through His grace and His willingness to save you, has given you Jesus Christ to wash away your sins, to have His righteousness imputed to you. 
And you wish to do that through obedience to the Gospel, we'd be glad to help you. Or if you are here and you are a Christian, and maybe you're struggling with insecurity, and maybe you're not seeing with clarity the Jesus that hanged on the cross for your sins, and your life is, is a constant struggle every day. Am I right with God? And you, and you ride that, that roller coaster. You know, I'm saved today, I'm lost today. I'm saved today, I'm lost today. I'm saved. That's not the way we were intended to live in Christ. But to have full faith and have full confidence that right here, right now, I'm right with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we can help you to increase your faith and strengthen your faith in any way, we'd ask you to come as we stand and sing.